0: All right. Please remain standing for a moment. We're going to read Romans chapter 14 from verse 25, and you remember there's that difference in the majority text and the critical text. And then we'll also be reading the very first six verses of chapter 15. So, Romans. Sure. No, I'll, I'll, I'll point out again. So, so that there's. A minority of manuscripts have verses uh, 25 through 27 of chapter 14 at the end of chapter 16. And that is just the manuscript set that has typically been used. But the majority of Greek manuscripts have the verses here. And so that's, that's it. That's the, that's the reason why. All right, thank you. Okay. So you'll have a footnote in your scripture text that points that out, probably. Most of the printings will point that out. If you go to chapter 16, it will say that about the verses 25 through 27. It'll have a footnote there of... of sorry, yeah, chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. It'll have a footnote there explaining that manuscript difference. All right. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. (coughs) To God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak, And not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. So we talked about this text last time. We went into the second commandment, and the reason for that, as a doctrinal set is, You think about having one mind, that relates to the first commandment, right? having the shared knowledge of God, and the first commandment is a requirement to know and acknowledge God as the true God, and then we get into the idea of the acknowledgement with the mouth, and you start to move into the second commandment, having one mouth, and that's using the ordinances that God has given to us for religious worship to grow in unity. So the process of growing in unity has to do with the second commandment. And the second commandment, when we carefully observe the second commandment, we protect each other's consciences. When we preserve Christian liberty, what we're doing is we're being very careful not to just allow people to do whatever they want in worship. That's not Christian liberty. That's chaos. Christian liberty is doing only the things that God has appointed, only the things that God has commanded, because it keeps us free from the doctrines and commandments of men. And so we are at liberty from the world, the flesh, and the devil, when we are careful to observe the law of God, and in particular in worship, to make sure that there is no worship imposed upon the church and imposed upon the consciences of the people in the church by the one leading worship by being careful to preserve the second commandment, by being careful to preserve the regulative principle, not adding to or subtracting from the Word of God for what we're supposed to do in worship. Now, I have reprinted for you the notes going through that text, but what I'd like to do, because we'll be going through... Some proof texts is to move to the doctrinal section since we've already discussed the text itself last week. So turn with me to page 3 of the outline. We're continuing in the doctrine section. And so if we've got here, what is the second commandment? Well, we, we have that printed out, so we'll walk through it. But I want to give to you the, the principal form of it. What is it that it's communicating as a set of principles? It says... Essentially, it communicates to us the duty to use the means that God has appointed to know and acknowledge him. In other words, God doesn't just say, I want you to know me, and I want you to acknowledge me. Go figure it out. God says, I want you to know me, and I want you to acknowledge me, and here's how you do that. And the here's how you do that is what the second commandment's about. Oftentimes, people sort of smush the first and second commandment together because they go, well, the first commandment is to have no other gods, and the second commandment is to not have idols And the only way we think about idols is to think idols are false gods. So we should have the true God and not have false gods. Makes sense. But we need to remember the first example of idolatry that occurred immediately after the giving of the second commandment was Moses coming down and seeing Aaron with all the people having a golden calf and saying, This is Yahweh. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt like five minutes ago. We just made it. Nobody there thought the thing we just made is God. Nobody thought that. What did they think? They thought this image is honoring to the God who is eternal. This image is honoring to the God that brought us out of Egypt. This image is honoring to the God of our fathers. That was the first example given to us immediately after the giving of the second commandment. So the issue is, even when we have the true God, there's a danger of us worshiping Him in ways that we make up. If God is all-wise, we should use the means that God has appointed to grow in the possession of Him. Right? Think about the marvelous set of ordinances that God has given for His worship. And how it's centered around the Word. We know the invisible God by propositional truth. He is the God of propositional truth. He is the eternal mind. He is truth. He is the Logos. And so by possessing his truth, we possess him. And he has given to us worship that in this new covenant era makes that so much more plain, and we hate it. And so we look for everything we can possibly add as pomp and circumstance. We look for things that make us feel we look for things that help us to not be bored. We look for things that are less focused upon doctrine, less focused upon words, and more focused upon anything else. God help us. Right? That is why, overwhelmingly, the churches are full of experiential nonsense one way or the other. Lasers and fog, smells and bells, therapeutic Deistic, moralistic preaching with sappy stories and sentimentalism. Whatever brand you want, it's all about the feels. That's the danger. And if we think we are free from that danger because we have white walls in our assembly hall, be careful. We have the same temptations. We are like unto the broader evangelicals in every way including the sin. And so we need to be careful to have the doctrinal base, not just a habit, but a rational basis, not a vain credulity, but a rational basis, not a fideistic accepting of the type of worship that we're used to, but a way of demonstrating that this is the worship that God approves of. God is all-wise, and we should use the means that God has appointed to grow in the possession of Him. We possess God by knowing God. We should seek to grow in the knowledge of God and to share the knowledge of God by the means that God has appointed. To use means that we think are more effective is to seek to serve the God of the Bible in a way that we desire rather than the way that He commands. It is man-centric. It is anthropocentric rather than God-centric, theocentric. So we are in danger of that because we are sinful humans. So, question 107 of the larger catechism. Which is the second commandment? The second commandment is, you shall not make unto yourself any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now before we move off of that question, do you see the colon just before thou shalt not bow down? So look there you shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them what is the difference between that okay the bow down yourself is the common hebrew word for worship hawa or hava the next word this idea of serving or working for them this is telling us don't offer specific acts of worship and also, don't live your life in service to them. Okay, so the first one is don't give the specific acts of worship. And we'll talk about that language a little bit more. We'll follow that, that vocabulary. And then, again, not kind of generally serving. So the Bible talks about worship in two ways, and I keep emphasizing this, but it's key. There's a way in which we are to live our whole lives in the service of God, to the glory of God, that all of life is worship in the sense that we are supposed to live our whole lives for the glory of God. But there's also special set-apart worship. There are particular acts that are acts of communion with God, and those things are special. They are set apart from the ordinary aspects of life, where to have time is dedicated. The public assembly of the church is one example of that time. And we have the Sabbath, and we have the public assembly of the church in that time. And then there's the private worship and the household worship that exists in the private sphere. And those times are worship in that first sense, the bowing down sense. Okay, so we'll, we'll follow that out. So let's go. Question 108. What are the duties required in the second commandment? The duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing and keeping pure and entire. Right? Keeping it pure, not mixing it with anything, and entire, not losing any part of it. All such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in his word. And when we we try to worship God in a different way than that, it's sort of like, you've seen these old statues where the arms are broken off. So when that happens, that's sort of like if you lose a piece of the statue, you lose a piece of the structure that the artist originally gave. You go, wow, what a disaster, the loss of that piece if we don't keep the worship that God has appointed entire, then it's sort of like losing the arm off the statue. It's our job to preserve the worship that God has given to us. Not that we could lose the word. God will preserve his word. But that we could lose the understanding and believing and the practicing of the worship he's appointed. Now, when we just make things up and add it on, it'd be sort of like... You see one of these statues and you go, you know what would be cool? Let's put a lobster crab arm thing, claw, on this statue. Let's just slap that on there. It'll make the art better. So you got one of these Grecian statues with a claw. That's about the level of competence that we display when we just add stuff on to the worship of God as we (laughs) make these Grecian claws. All right, so... That image hopefully will stick with you into the disgustingness of of inventing worship for God. So we keep it entire and we keep it pure without mixing on things that shouldn't be added. Now, the things he's instituted, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration and receiving of the sacraments, church, government, and discipline— the ministry and maintenance thereof, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God, and vowing unto him, as also the disapproving, detesting, opposing all false worship, and according to each one's place and calling, removing it in all monuments of idolatry. So, the positive duty, you are positively performing the duty of the second commandment when you oppose false worship, and when you destroy monuments of idolatry that are under your authority. So then, we talked about that in more detail last time. So let's jump into the negative aspect of the law. The things that we're not to do. So we've talked about the goal. The goal here is use the type of worship God's given so that we grow in the knowledge of God. All right, that's the positive aspect of the second commandment. So we're using worship right worship, to glorify God by knowing and spreading the knowledge of God. The negative aspect is we avoid the pollutants. We avoid the negative. We avoid taking something beautiful and making it ugly. So, question 109. What are the sins forbidden in the second commandment? The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God Himself. Now that's the the general way of putting it, and then we've got sort of explanation that goes down. Tolerating a false religion, the making any representation of God, of all or of any of the three persons. "...either inwardly in our mind, or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. All worshiping of it, or God in it, or by it. The making of any representation of feigned deities. And all worship of them, or service belonging to them. All superstitious devices, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it, or taking from it. Whether invented and taken up of ourselves or received by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever. Simony, sacrilege, all neglect, contempt, hindering, and opposing the worship and ordinances which God has appointed. Okay, so we've got a lot of stuff to get through in terms of what are these things talking about and how do we apply this. So let's go to the first chunk there. Go to point one on page four. The sins forbidden in the Second Commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and anywise approving any religious worship not instituted by God Himself. Okay, so what's worship? Here I've given you a, a definition. My hope is to make it very clear what worship is in the narrow sense. Worship is a period of time that is set apart exclusively for the purpose of communion with God by the means which he has appointed, normally initiated by a physical act that expresses humility toward God, consecrates the time by a visible sign, and calls upon God to be present. Okay, So that's acceptable worship. That's the worship that God has given to us. So let's walk through that for a second. There are acts of worship And then there's worship itself. Worship is set apart time. This, This idea of a consecrated time. So the consecrated time should only have the acts of worship. So the acts of worship are the acts for communion with God. The acts of worship are the things that you do for communion with God. Communion with God is not a mystical, ununderstandable concept. Communion with God is knowing God. So how do you have union with God? How do you participate in the divine nature? By knowing the truth that God has revealed. When you know the truth, you are possessing God. So how do you learn about God? How do you commune with God to the exclusion of other things? Right? We should be thinking about God throughout the day. We should be honoring God throughout the day. We should be meditating on the Word of God throughout the day. We should be applying the law of God throughout the day. And all those things will increase our knowing of God. But the idea is that the time of worship is a time that is dedicated to being reminded of, or learning new truths about God. That's the focal point. And so the things that God has given to us are the things that he is saying, this is how you will grow in the knowledge of me. So worship is a period of time that's set apart exclusively for communion with God. Now the means that he's given to us we have to look for what those are in the scriptures and and thankfully the larger catechism in the question 108 has listed out for us those positive means that we're to use. So you can look at the proof text. See are those actually what is appointed. You'll notice it doesn't list out psalm singing. The confession does but it's including psalm singing in the idea of the thanksgiving and praise. So This idea that there's a a set of things that we are to do for the worship of God. Now, the idea of a physical act. When we think about what worship is at its heart, look at point 1A, Roman numeral I, 2. Worship is a heart prostration before God. Can your heart literally bow? It's a heart prostration before God. With any act of communion with God, we designate a time for worship by a formal beginning with a physical act of marking off the time. So we start with a call to worship. We stand for that. If you start with prayer, what you do is you... You bow for that, or you kneel for that, or you go prostrate for that. Now, in public worship, it's orderly to simply have the bowing of the head. But if you're in private worship and you begin the time with prayer, you can fall on your face. You can kneel, bow the head. You can raise up the hands in prayer. Now this idea that there's this set of things that we see that are appropriate in prayer we can find those throughout the scriptures and so this physical act these are physical acts that god has given for honoring with the reading of the word he says to stand that's the example that we're given is the standing for that but these physical acts are a part of what god has commanded for his honor and so you think about the interest that God says, you know, he gives us the example of standing for the reading of his word, and he also says, Hey, when the grey haired walk in, you stand. And there's there's sort of these these things that we have honor, and that's the idea of recognizing the older as being ones who are to be honored, because of the idea that the gray head is a symbol of wisdom, and so you're saying, Here is one in whom there is the sign for a greater possession of God. It's greater wisdom. So, we have things that we're given to help us to think about the honoring that is to be done. Now, I have point A and B there, listing out some of that. You know, praying with the laying on of hands, the raising of hands, bowing, kneeling, prostrating. There's also standing to hear the word out loud or standing to sing. And so, we we have these things that can be done, the physical, the physical thing to go, okay, we're entering into this holy time, and that helps to differentiate. Now, this idea of, of what worship is, there's vocabulary, right? So look at point three. The word for worship in Hebrew, hawa or hava, is to bow down deeply. It's to do obeisance. That's the, the use of the word. So it's often translated worship, but the word is, is from this idea of, of bowing down deeply the greek word that's used is proskuneo which means to bow down or to go prostrate it, it literally comes from pro which is toward and kuneo which is to kiss which you know think about psalm 2 this idea of kissing the sun so this kissing toward this this doing obeisance this bowing to now the general words that are used for Service in the whole of life in Greek are litreo and liturgio. And in Hebrew, they are evad. Generally, you see that translated as work or serve. You pronounce it evad depending on how you deal with that letter. Okay, so these, these words, hawa and proskeneo those are the main words for worship. That is the set-apart worship of God. And you will find that consistently the idea of worship uses these Greek and Hebrew words. And the ones that talk about the service to God in all of life use the other ones. The other Greek and Hebrew words. So it's remarkable the, the clarity of God's word. So we talked about what worship is. And So now the issue is, okay, so we're not supposed to devise any religious worship. Except for that which is... We're not supposed to devise any worship. We're only supposed to have that which is instituted by God. So, look at Numbers fifteen thirty-nine. 39. Uh, that's the key text. I've given you some verses around it. Well, let's walk through this text. and Let's think about God gave something to the people in the Old Covenant to help them to remember this. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments "...throughout their generations, and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel, that you may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them. And that you may not follow the harlotry, to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. And that you may remember and do all my commandments, and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God." who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. Now, the idea here is God gave these tassels on the clothing to to remind people that they were supposed to keep the law. I mean, think about this. Literally, a part of the clothing in the Old Covenant was have clothing, have the tassels on the edge of it, and every time you see those, I want you to remember the law of God. Think about the kind of immaturity that implies that you need a tassel on your clothing to remember it. That—that's When you think about the Old Covenant ceremonies they are ceremonies for an infant people. And this is one of the examples that the Old Covenant ceremonies are intentionally infantile. The idea that Every day, on the clothing, there is something to remind the keeping of the law. Now, it's supposed to remind to do what God commands positively and to not do the stuff that your own heart and your own eyes desire. So this is, don't make up ways of serving God. And, there's a repetition about that. That That's a type of harlotry. And remember to do what God has positively commanded. Be holy for your God. When you see holy, holy means it's set apart for a purpose. And when it's set apart for that purpose, that means you don't use it for anything else. Right? We, we, we get bored of the word holy. We hear it so much. It's all over the Bible. But that right there, every time you hear holy, set apart for doing something not to be used for anything else. So when there's like a censer in the temple that's holy to God, the only thing you're supposed to use that censer for is burning incense to God in the temple. You don't use it to deliver biscuits for tea time. You only use it to burn that incense and nothing else. So if we're holy to God, we do the stuff God commands and nothing else. He repeats in verse 41, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord. You have a duty to obey me. I'm your God by covenant. You have a duty to obey me. I redeemed you out of slavery. You have a duty to obey me. Why did I do that? So that I could be your God. That the fourth time. I am the Lord, fifth time. Your God, sixth time. Wowzer. What is that about? He's saying, I made this really clear. I want you to do what I commanded. I don't want you to make stuff up. That's whoredom. Or that's the kind of language he uses. That's whoredom. Whoa. And then he says he's God six times. <laughs> Now, we're not supposed to counsel other people to break this commandment. We're not supposed to command other people to break this commandment. We're not supposed to use things that would violate this commandment. And we're not supposed to, in any way, approve any religious worship that's not instituted by God. Okay, so think about that. Don't make it up. Don't counsel people to make things up. Don't command people to make things up. Don't use things that are made up. And don't in any way at all approve stuff that's made up. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 12 recaptures this. And it, it tells us, you know, if you don't follow this, it will escalate quickly. Okay, so let's see. What is it, what it this? Deuteronomy 12. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess and you displace them and dwell in their land. Now we think, oh, this, is only, this only applies to the Jews. We don't have any land. We, the church has definitely not received any land that used to be owned by pagans. We get the whole world Where we are right now is a place that used to be dominated by human sacrifice. Okay, I want you to understand the degree to which human sacrifice was prominent here, right here, before the influence of Christianity. The, the people that lived in darkness in North and South America were not noble, enlightened people. They did not have the scriptures. They did not have the Bible. That is not a racist statement. That is a statement about the whole race of man in the absence of the revealed truth from God's mind. Human beings murder each other and they turn it into a religious act everywhere where the Bible is absent. One of the great themes of the going forth of the Bible is that People with the Bible encounter other people who don't have the Bible, and a part of their religious service is to murder people. And Christianity kills that. Pun intended. Now, Deuteronomy 12. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I will do likewise. One of the things that's happening as people try to decolonialize or whatever is they go, you know, Christianity, not so great. You know what was really good? The religions that were there before, the indigenous religions, they were great. The best. How can we restructure society to take in those things? right? So you see this bringing in of paganism and witchcraft and all this nonsense, and people trying to praise it in some ways and try to say, let's not allow for the Christo normative view to occur. The, the cultures that are dominated by Christianity, this is a type of oppression. Let's go back and look at the gods that dwelled in this land before. Verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Not in the ways that these false gods were worshipped before. Don't add that on and say, let's worship Yahweh this way. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Now, in the abandoning of Christianity, what we see is a growth of human sacrifice in America. A million people a year are sacrificed to the idols of convenience, economic wherewithal, convenience, economic wherewithal. Right? These are the gods. That's hard, and I won't have as much money. We pretend like there are other reasons why people kill their babies we pretend like well you know rape and incest and deformities and the health or life of the mother these are the reasons for abortion very very few abortions are done for that reason almost all abortions are done to sacrifice to the god of convenience and personal wealth so the decline of Christianity and the failure of the church to speak, we see literal killing of people for the worship of self in our land. It will not be long before there is the killing of people for other gods by name. Verse 32, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it And so don't worship in some way that other gods said they're demons or they're inventions of people's hearts. You shall not add to the commandments that God has given to you or take away from it. Whatever God commands, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. The law of God is sufficient for life. And the law of God is sufficient for worship. Now, In America, this part's not very popular. One of the sins of the second commandment is tolerating a false religion. Tolerating a false religion is something where, under law, we protect the performance of that religion. And even now, in our pluralism, we don't even just tolerate anymore. We promote false religion. We allow Satanists to pray in city council meetings. We allow for monuments to Satan to exist outside of courthouses. And the Ten Commandments, if we say it's anything other than a historical reference to some people somewhere who thought maybe that the Ten Commandments mattered, if we say it's anything beyond that, the Ten Commandments get torn down. The Ten Commandments are the law above human law. And when the Ten Commandments are on a wall and we say it's only out of recognition of the past and not out of recognition of the God who gave them, that's idolatry too. It's taking God's name in vain. It's an offense, and a stench. So the responsibility is to say this is the law of God, it's the authority, any law that violates it, we will not enforce. That's what the courts used to do. It was common practice in the United States of America that if a contract said somebody has to work on the Lord's Day, that that was an unenforceable contract. Look it up online. You will find case after case after case where it was said this is an illegal contract. Everybody knew that, and that was commonly understood. And the reference to the common law in the Constitution is a recognition of judging law by the word of God. And that's why it has been common since the founding of the Republic that when you take an oath of office to say, so help me God. Even George Washington, even though it wasn't written into the original presidential oath, he said it because he knew it would be idolatry as an Episcopalian. He knew it would be idolatry to take an oath and not appeal to God. To not give it in the name of God. So Deuteronomy 13, if you go through it, he talks about trying to secretly convince your brother to apostatize. It talks about false prophets calling people to worship other gods. And it talks about cities that abandon the covenant, the national covenant, and go after false gods. And it talks about capital punishment for that. Now, we want to say that that applies to Israel of old, and it does not apply now. Well, let's remember, what are the things that apply now? The things that apply now are the general equity of the civil law, the principles of justice. And what applies now are the meaning, the meaning of the ceremonies. There's nothing ceremonial there. You will look in vain in Deuteronomy 13 for ceremonies. What is the general principle? The general principle is... When you call upon a false god and call people to the worship of a false god, it's a capital crime. That's the principle of justice. So, point three. Making any representation of God of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever, all worship of that image and all worship of God in that image or by that image. So this is not just having an image and saying this image is God. It's even having an image and saying this is the true God. Also having an image and saying that we're worshiping the true God by the use of this image. If you have pictures of Jesus, burn them. If you have pictures of God, burn them. Mm -hmm. If you have something in your house that you are tempted to pray toward for any reason, or some talisman that you have a tendency to want to grab or have some sort of thinking about it in your mind when you're praying, if there's anything that you have that's a physical object that has the tendency towards somehow involving it in your worship. And it is not appointed by God. Destroy it. Point four. The making of any representation of feigned deities. Don't make statues of the lady justice. Don't make statues of Zeus. Don't create Images of false gods or the true God or the attributes of God. And all worship of those images or service belonging to them. Superstitious devices. What are superstitious devices? Any device, any invention, any practice or item that you think this is going to wield supernatural power. Rabbit's feet, lucky charms of any variety fortune cookies, any type of divination, anything with any superstition attached to it that is a device for superstition. Six. We are forbidden from corrupting the worship of God. We are forbidden from adding to it. Any adding to it is a corruption. We are forbidden from taking away from it, any reduction of it, you know It's common in our time to talk about how wicked it is to take young adults or children and to you know, transition them. Right? And what's happening there is, is mutilation of perfectly healthy bodies. It's wicked. The doctors that participate in it should be punished. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. When we take away from the worship of God we are chopping away what God has given to us. We have to be careful to observe all the things that God has appointed. Corrupting the worship of God, adding to the worship of God, taking away from the worship of God, whether invented and taken up by ourselves, in which case you're worshiping yourself as God. Or who makes up the worship? Me. That makes me God. You don't feel like it? I don't care. You do what God has commanded. You do not invent for yourself. And if you think you're God, let's have a conversation. Anything that has been received by tradition from others oh, are they God? Oh, your fathers did this. Were they God? Holy councils declared it. Were they God? They got in part, and then when they get together, they make a full god. Is that what the council is? Separately, they're power rangers. Together, they make god. Appealing to the title of antiquity. Oh, an ancient false god. It's more venerable than. So people have been so stupid that they've done this for centuries. Let's do it. Antiquity does not give honor. Antiquity makes it more shameful. Receiving by tradition from others, though under the title of antiquity or custom, everybody does it. Well, then they're all wrong. Let God be true and every man a liar. They have a really strong zeal when they do it. Well, that's zeal without knowledge. They have good intentions. No, they don't. The human heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Their intentions aren't good. Their intentions are good when their intentions are in line with God, who is good, who defines what's good. And there's no other pretense to justify worship that God has not appointed or to justify not doing some worship that God has given. Point seven. Simony and sacrilege are forbidden. What's simony? Simony is offering to pay money for a spiritual privilege or power or position. It goes to Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8. So that is forbidden. This was famously done by the papal dominion in selling off invented church offices. We're going to make up church offices and then we're going to sell them. Sacrilege. Another form of simony, by the way, was indulgences. Paying money for the forgiveness of sins or the removal of temporal punishments for sins. Sacrilege. What's sacrilege? Sacrilege is to steal the sacred, it is violating or profaning sacred things. It's giving sacred things to the polluted. Or polluting the sacred things. It's a type of stealing because it's a violation of the property rights of the Holy One. Who defines the proper use. The second commandment forbids neglecting the worship of God. I don't feel like worshipping this morning. I don't feel like worshipping this evening. I don't feel like worshipping this Lord's Day. It is forbidden in the second commandment. You think you don't need it? You do need it. You do not know your needs better than God. God has defined you. He has made you. He has made your nature. He has given to us these ordinances. His commandments are designed to fit with our nature. Our nature is designed to fit with His commandments. And both together were designed for His glory. Amen. We need them. If you think you don't need them, you are wrong. Fight that lie. A contempt of them. They're not going to work. This won't transform me. This won't make me better. My sins will not be subdued. My desire for wickedness will not be reduced. My desire for holy things will not be increased. That's a lie. Pray for the blessing of God. Pray for God to subdue your flesh and use the ordinances and God will bless them. Hindering these things. Now, men, sometimes as heads of house we can neglect the household worship, but sometimes wives and children can hinder it. And in our weakness, we might say, okay, fine, I'm not going to do it, or I give up. If you're under authority, support the worship, encourage the use, encourage the high view of worship and the means that God has appointed. Do not hinder, do not undermine, do not be opposition. If you're in authority and you have someone under your authority and you try to stop them or you say we need to do this other thing instead or we don't have time today. Do not hinder. Do not stop. Do not oppose. Lead in that worship. Encourage. Second commandment forbids the opposing of the worship and ordinance that God has appointed. Now you go, well, why would I ever oppose something that I thought God appointed it? Typically, it's going to be out of ignorance. Which means, if you don't want to oppose what God has commanded, study. Now, thankfully, he's instituted for us morning and evening worship every day. And the Sabbath day to study. So you should be able to get that quickly. But if you need extra time, feel free to use your available free time to search out what the scriptures say and be careful to not oppose. Thankfully, we also have the work of our forefathers in the faith who have come before us and although it is not an authority in itself, them gathering the verses together and creating a list is rather convenient. And so you might want to go back to question one and wait. So we have the reasons, question 110. What are the reasons that are connected, that are annexed to the second commandment? The more to enforce it. The reasons that are annexed to the second commandment, the more to enforce it, contained in these words... For I am the Lord your God, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, are, beside the sovereignty beside God's sovereignty over us and propriety in us, His fervent zeal for His own worship, and his revengeful indignation against all false worship, as being a spiritual whoredom accounting the breakers of this commandment such as hate him and threatening to punish them unto diverse generations and esteeming the observers of it such as love him and keep his commandments and promising mercy to them unto many generations. Page seven there. God tells us he's the Lord he tells us he's our covenant God, and he tells us he's jealous. He's jealous. When we think of jealousy, we think jealousy is a bad thing. When you're jealous for what's yours, that's right. Man, you ought to be jealous for your wives. and Wives, you ought to be jealous for your husbands. You have a singular possession, a singular right, And God is a jealous God. He has a zealous desire for what's his. And he will have it. And he tells us that his zeal for this is so high that those that whore themselves out to false gods or false ways of worshiping, he will bring curse on them, the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, maybe the next generation. And he loves right worship so much that he will bless the generation that worships him rightly, and the next generation, 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 times a hundred. That's how you get to a thousand. You multiply ten by a hundred, and you get to a thousand. A thousandth generation. But let's not talk about worship. Let's not fight over worship. Let's not have worship wars. God has a sovereignty over us. He is God. And He has an ownership claim that's special on us. He's our God. And His jealousy, His fervent zeal for His own worship is rooted in his right. And he has a revengeful indignation against false worship. He views it as a spiritual whoredom. He views it as though his wife had sold herself and engaged in sexual immorality with another. That's a spiritual whoredom. And he views the right worship of himself as an act of love, right? It's like the faithful giving of marital love. It is a communion with God and sexual communion is a pointer of the union between Christ and the church. It is the covenant sign of marriage and it's given the difference between man and woman and the union in marriage is given for the purpose of showing the union between Christ and the church. And so spiritual whoredom, that connection, further gives meaning to that sign. Nothing is more important than the glory of God. Worship is the concentration point of glorifying God. The highest output of the display of the glory of God and the highest input of receiving the glory of God inwardly, occurs in worship. What you worship and the way you worship have an important impact upon your thoughts, words, and deeds. And you become like what you worship. And you become like how you worship. If you worship the God who is truth, by being careful to be centered upon his word and to take it in, you will become self-controlled, you will become highly rational, you will be a knower, you will be an actor on holiness, you will become righteous in your judgments, you will manifest a transformed existence after the image of Christ. You will become like Christ more and more as you worship the true God with the means that he has appointed and rely upon the Holy Spirit to bless that. That is the transformation tool set. It's the worship that God has appointed. And the church is the assembly for the shared use of those tools. And so we ought to have a zeal for the worship of God. And the three marks of the church are right doctrine, right worship, and right government. The government protects the doctrine and the worship. And the worship is for the teaching of the doctrine. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members as to speaking rights. Mr. Price. Mm-hmm. Um, we made a statement stating that. South Could you explain the relation between Genesis twenty-two and when God? Asked it seems like, with that context, that God was asking him to do something that um, he, that in North America would have easily done, and had that been the case, then that would have been a faithful uh, version of God. Uh, it seems like a more accurate statement would be human sacrifice is acceptable as long as God is the one asking him to do it, but God generally doesn't ask that too. He's him to him. Great. So the question is uh, how do I reconcile? The statement that God ends human sacrifice with the with Genesis twenty two, and dare I say, also with the sacrifice of Christ. Okay. And and so then uh, this idea of isn't it better to say that human sacrifice is is wrong unless God commands it? Yes. So yes, you're right. Uh, but God does not require any human sacrifice except for the sacrifice of Christ, and Genesis twenty two is about that. So the idea that there's a command to do it, the acknowledgement that yes, God owns everybody, and if it were required by God, first of all, Isaac deserved to die for sin, and secondly, um, if he demanded as a sacrifice our own life, the life of anybody else, it would be right. And so, the idea that he deserves death and deserves to be sacrificed, but God stops the sacrifice of Isaac, and he also provides a substitute ram to die in the place of Isaac. That is the point of that story, that the substitute of a ram that God provided. And so Christ himself, being the only acceptable human sacrifice, he was righteous and he volunteered himself. And he was told by the father that his sacrifice would be acceptable. Right? So... That would be the difference, and um, any other human sacrifice is an abomination to God. Any follow up on that? Any follow up on that? Uh, I guess the main struggling that I, I have with that is just the, uh, the portion where it was initially asked to begin with,
1: where uh, and, and, and
0: essentially human sacrifice. was, uh, I think, insignificant when compared to the commonality (coughs) of the sacraments. And it makes it seem less noble that he was putting off of his son in that case. Lots of people in South America have done the same thing and um, have been faithful to God without asking at the time. So I don't know what they're saying. I guess the issue is that the people other than those who are given faith, there are any, uh, any sacrifice they give is to a false God. And so even though it be with zeal and even though it be with great cost, it is not noble because of its rootedness in falsehood. And so the truth is necessary. The knowledge of the truth is necessary for an act to be in faith. And so that faith, the knowledge of the truth makes it so that the act that comes, that is in accordance with that truth is noble. And so it is the faith that's, that's the noble element. Um, and being willing to pay great price in true faith is noble. And so that would be the issue. But the, the other thing is there are no human sacrifices God requires except for Christ. And and so human sacrifice is a marker of abominable worship in that only the sacrifice of Christ is legitimate and he offered himself. And so the killing of other people in worship of God is both murder and idolatry, and that's the point. And even with Christ, it was sin by those who did it. The humans that killed him were murdering him, and they were worshipping a false god of either a, a um, tradition-based Judaism, or the beast that is Rome as a false god empire. Huh. So, right, Thank you for your question. Uh, Mr. Schaefer. Do
1: you elaborate on making idols to attributes of God, like
0: uh, yeah you make lady justice that's supposed to be a marker of justice itself and that's an attribute of god and so then you have this physical representation of justice and when you read the more urbane pagans that's what they say their idols are this is a marker of this attribute of the eternal and so you'll, you'll read in the city of god augustine addresses that along with Many other types of idolatry across many, 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 many pages. But that's one of the things he deals with with the more urbane pagans. Great. Okay, Mr. Crotty.
1: Um, I just wanted to um, in, make a, a comment, not a, not a question. Um, yesterday, I had uh, a couple Jehovah's Witnesses um, from Nigeria came to my door. And um, we got in a discussion, and I was tempted to just turn them away outright uh, because they were going door to door in my neighborhood trying to spread their satanic deception. And I, but I didn't, I, uh, by God's grace, I did talk to them and shared the gospel with them, and we went back and forth uh, until it started to rain on us, and then we, you know, we said we would. Uh, Continue at another time with the Bible because they say they go by the Bible and and uh, but they clearly don't you know honor Christ as Christ and so um, but why I did tell them that they were uh, satanists and they were deceiving people and but I I still talk to them I still engage with them and I just I just want to encourage you that um, if you have the opportunity to. Uh, don't turn uh, cultists like that away. Uh, do engage with them because that's what we're supposed to do. Um, I think turning them away is actually a temptation of uh, the, uh, Satan also because uh, that keeps them going to hell. And uh, but if we engage with them and we win them by God's grace, that's a victory. And uh, I just want to encourage you to. Uh, To not fall into that temptation to just, they're wicked. Get out of here.
0: You know, just engage them. Great. Yeah, I I encourage that. I think that um, if uh, if you are if you don't know about those, I would encourage learn about them. Learn about these false religions. Have a sense of how to defeat them. um, Why they contradict the Bible, Mm -hmm. and then be ready to engage. And um, I think that it might be prudent if you don't know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses to set up a different time to talk and to then feel free to come to me and I'd be happy to talk to you about how to engage on it and to give you some of the key doctrines that they are in error about and the texts of the scriptures. And I think that that, uh, setting up a time to talk in the future, uh, if you don't know how to do it then, would also be an acceptable way of honoring the Lord in that still engage in them. Sure, right. Okay, thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you to help us to carefully guard your worship, that we would not add to it or subtract from it, and that we would see the sufficiency of your law, that we would realize by deep meditation, by consistent meditation, the way in which your law sufficiently covers all of the principles that we need to make good decisions in life, and gives to us all of the elements of worship that we need so that we know what things to have as holy and to use for communing with you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.